kind of makes me nervous if he's listening. Um, but uh, we think, Denise and I, uh, think a lot of Jared, Angela, and the family. My wife, Denise, is sitting right over here. We came up from Calvary Monterey this morning to get to be with you. And I'm almost 49 years in ministry. And you know, it never gets old to me. Well, thank you. That just means I'm old is all it means. But uh, I just it just never gets old to me to meet new compartments of the church, to be in a different city, and to break open the Word of God. While you're turning to Ephesians chapter 2, the first 10 verses, I uh, just wanted to say about myself, I am 67 years old, I weigh 192, I love teaching the Bible, I like motorcycles, I don't have one at the moment, but we have four grown daughters, and now all married, and six grandkids. And so, thank you. And so, in the days ahead, um, we are going to be slowing down a little bit in the work at our church and traveling more and getting to be in, in more places, I trust, and meeting more uh, parts of the church. I'm a church geek. My dad was a pastor, and the church has always been my great love. Even before I became a Christian at age 16 and then a pastor at 18, I had a thing for the church. It's always been to me a place of community, a, a place of meaning. And then when I got saved, which really helped, I discovered the Bible. And I, you know, I was raised in a pastor's home, but I just never myself read the Bible. And the night I got saved, I uh, went kind of blind to a, a home Bible study, and they said, turn to the book of Matthew, and I had no idea where Matthew lived. I had never held a Bible on my own. But I must say that in all the years since then, some 50 years since I've been, been saved, I have found the Bible so, so practical so inspirational, such a thing to get up early in the morning to spend time with. And so I have a lofty goal here this morning. I, I didn't come up here because I had nothing else to do. I really came up here hoping to change your life. I was very fortunate to fall into Christ at 16 and then into ministry at 18. I met Denise in 1972, our first week in university, and I wound up being asked in that December 72 to pastor a small group of Jesus freaks on a university campus, and I got my foot stuck in that river and have, have never gotten it out again. And the reason I say that is I discovered meaning and purpose in life vocationally very young. Every one of us wants to be useful, to be needed, to be even maybe indispensable, so that when we leave this world, we've made our mark. The key to that is not trying to imitate anybody else, not trying to be like anyone else except to imitate their faith, Hebrews 13, but it's to find what you were born to do in this world. And I want to show you practically how at least to be pointed toward that thing, to lay hold of the thing 
for which Christ has laid hold of you. For me, I'm a pastor teacher. That's what I do. You could put me, stand me upside down. I could still pastor you and teach you. It's just that ingrained in me. What about you? Now, you're called to be a mom, called to be a dad, to be a citizen, a friend. I mean, there's all kinds of things that we do. And if someone comes up and says, you know, the nursery needs an extra worker today, we, we don't say, well, that's not my destiny. You know, there's, there's lots of ways that we just serve. But when you find this sweet spot, kind of like when you hit a, a golf ball correctly, or you hit a, with a tennis racket the ball in the sweet spot, life takes on a whole different meaning. And we're going to see here in Ephesians 2, in, the, in just these 10 verses, Paul's progression from painting our past condition in the first three verses to the present condition in 4 through 7, and then the ultimate destiny, and I want you to go to the dessert first, and that's verse 10, because this is where I want to point you and get you today. It's the verse that I was captivated by from the very first time I heard it quoted. It says in the New American Standard Version, I don't know what version you're having today, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Can I emphasize that last phrase again? Created for good works, which God has prepared beforehand for us to walk in them. In other words, destiny is discovered. Your path, in at least in a ministry sense, is already laid out. I know this is a really dumb way to, to illustrate it, but this is the way I first grasped it. Did any of you ever watch the Flintstones uh, cartoons? And do you remember the time that Fred Flintstone went to the dance studio to learn to dance? And there were these big footprints on the ground in the dance studio. There was the one and the two and the three. And so he, he put his feet in those th steps and supposedly learned to dance. But I remember seeing that and thinking, now that's kind of like that verse I've been reading, that there's a path laid out for me in terms of my calling, my destiny, my purpose. Those, that thing which makes me unique on the entire planet, the particular steps God has for me. See, in the Christian life, it matters where you live. It matters how you live. Every day, who knows the significance of it? The Bible says, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day will bring. See, you have today. I have today. And as far as I know, I'm on the path that the Lord laid out for me so many years ago. And so I've never had a sense of meaninglessness. I've never had that sense of, you know, I don't matter. Many times I felt like, you know, I'm not as good as I want to be. I'm not as godly as I want to be. But never have I felt meaningless 
And I remember as a teenager just feeling like one big nothing. But when I got saved and then I was called to ministry, that just happens to be the thing that God has for me. It's just as godly to be a good mother, good father, good citizen. But what is it that God has for you? We are his workmanship. Now, people like to take that Greek word poema and say, well, then we're like a poem. But that word actually would be best translated as an instrument. We are his instrument, his tool. And you know, when you're building something or you're taking something apart or whatever, it really matters if you have the right tool. When you have the right tools, it, it's relatively easy. When you don't, it's really difficult. And the Lord uses that kind of word. We are his instruments. And then it says, created. I like that fact that you're not an accident. You're created. You're born at the right time. You're born with the right physique. You are created, and especially on the inside. However you're wired on the inside, God has had a lot to do with that because we are created in Christ Jesus. You're not just a product of your mom and dad. You are in Christ Jesus. And you're created for what kind of works? What does it say? Good works. There's something about that word good. The Greek word here doesn't mean morally good. It means effectively good. It's really cool when you start to find out what's my personality? What's, what's my direction? What's my wiring? How is it that, that God best works through me? And if you were as insecure as I was in my youth, I figured that the way upward in ministry was to find someone to imitate, walk like them, talk like them, preach like them. And I just found out that I wasn't as funny as the people around me. I wasn't as handsome as the people around me. And I, I wasn't as articulate. But as I've grown in God, I find that good works come naturally to me. And I think it's the same with you. God has prepared them beforehand that we should walk in them. The way you walk in them and discover them, I'm going to give you a, a, a how-to as we end. But please go back to verse 1, because we don't start with all the meaningfulness and effectiveness in verse 10 without looking at our original condition, which is verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. According, now notice the three phrases here. You walked as a dead person according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, according to the spirit now working in the sons of, what does it say? Can't hear you. Disobedience. It's interesting that the word for disobedience, you know what it really means? I won't listen. That's what, that's what causes disobedience, is not listening. He's not working among those who won't listen. Among them, 
we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. How many of you used to live in the lusts of your flesh? I mean, whatever your flesh wanted to eat, to drink, to shoot up, where to go, where to live, who to hang out with. We all know what that is. Mm. We all too formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Oh, the mind is a thing that needs to be controlled and tamed by God. Because our minds can get us in so much trouble. Our flesh, our unredeemed inward nature and our bodies can get us in a heap of trouble. But it's our minds. How many of you have ever had your mind go where you didn't want it to go? And then you had to reel it back. Because our minds are so active. They're given us by God to be creative and, and uh, obedient and so on and intelligent, but we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Even in the evangelical world, we don't hear enough about God's wrath. We are, according to Romans 5, 9, delivered from the wrath to come. But see, God is angry with our sin, angry with our rebellion and our disobedience, but wants us to leap to verse 4. Somebody read out loud the first two words of verse 4. Say it real loud. What does it say? But God. Oh, I love that. But God. There's good news after the bad news. But let me just double back on that bad news for a moment. Did you notice those three phrases? The course of the world. The Greek says the age of the world. The age means a specific period of time with specific characteristics. There's been the, the dark ages and the age of enlightenment and all of that. But there is a basic age that courses through the world like a river that takes people away from good and toward evil. One time I... When I was about 10 or 11, I was in Yosemite, and it was a flood year, and the Merced River was really, really high. And we all said, uh, we want to we float down the river on our air mattresses. And so, you know, the scoutmaster looks at the river, looks at us, he says, okay, anyone that can swim across the river and not drown, you may raft down the river, and I will take you. So I remember looking at that river. And thinking, I can go across that thing. But you know, you get out in it, and it is amazing the influence that it has on you. And this is what he's saying. The age of this world, the course of this world, the river of this world, taking people out of light and into darkness. And we've all lived like that. We've just kind of just done what was easy to do, like falling off a log, they say. And then he talks about the prince of the power of the air. Now, what or who is that? What or who is that? Satan. You know, it's interesting. I just read this morning in John 13, verse 2, how Satan put it in the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. It literally says Satan cozied up to Judas that day 
Satan is a created being. He is not omnipresent. But on that day, he was standing next to the betrayer. And John says in John 13, 2, Satan put it in the mind of Judas to betray Jesus. And in verse 27, after Jesus extends to him the covenant meal, they're in the Passover meal, and Jesus hands him that matzah, which is a sign of covenant and commitment. It says Satan entered him. What's interesting about Judas is he doesn't live another 12 hours. Because if Satan were to enter you, if Satan were himself to bombard you with everything he's got, I mean, that would be a, a horrible feeling, to be Satanized like he was. And then it says, the spirit working in the sons of disobedience. This is describing not you now, but people who are dead. Satan rules dead people who are alive, but dead on the inside. But God. Isn't that great? But God. Aren't you glad that God has the last word? And so, you know, I was a young Christian, and I began bumping into the work of Satan. I, I never gave Satan a moment's thought. And the only reason I'm mentioning him much this morning is because I want to make uh, much less of him as the, as the message goes. But I remember as a young Christian, 1973, in a 57 Chevy. Now, that today would be worth a lot of money. But to us, it was just a car. Driving into Kansas City, young man sitting next to me. I'm 19 years old or, or, or so. And I don't know this kid, but we're driving into Kansas City to a Bible study. And he leans over to me and he said, I feel so bad because I've just come to Christ, but in my past, I sacrificed a child to Satan. Now, I thought, I have never heard of such a thing, and I don't know if you're telling the truth, but the way he was so torn up, that was kind of my first introduction to something so ugly and so dark, and I could I could give you stories like that through, through my ministry here and there, meeting witches and warlocks and people that cultivate the power of the dark side. However, but God. But God, what you get in Satan's world is darkness and misery and control and frustration and no fulfillment. But here's what you get on the good side. Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy... And because of the great love with which he loved us. What do you get on the light side? You get mercy and you get love. Actually, riches of mercy and great love. I encountered both right when I got saved. I found that the Lord treated me far better than I would have treated myself. And that's called mercy. It's not getting what you deserve and getting what you don't deserve. Mercy. Riches of mercy. All of us have experienced that. You know, life can be a struggle, but there's also those times when things go better than they should, and you're just so thankful for His mercy. 
And what about God's love? How can we describe the love of God? How can we describe God accepting us, comforting us, his presence with us? There's just nothing like love. The Greek word, you know the Greek word, agape. It just means God's kind of love. And in God, because he's rich in mercy, because he has a great love of which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, dead in our transgressions, there's two different words here that are used in the Greek. One means to step over a line, and the other means to miss the mark. I know in my own life, I've stepped over lines when I shouldn't have crossed them. And I've missed the mark, even when I was trying to hit the target. But God, in verse 6, in verse, uh, verse 5, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. What went down in you when you bowed the knee to Christ is that God began sharing the life of Christ and placing it in you. And you began thinking about things you never thought about. You began going places that you never thought about. I used to go to a Thursday night Bible study, and I would ditch my scout troop constantly. And I would think, isn't it interesting, the choices I'm now making? I'm thinking different. I'm going different places. I'm going to a Bible study on a Thursday night. Now, who does that? In a junior year of high school, who's going to Bible study like that? But something happened to me. The life of Christ, who died for me, who was buried for me, who rose for me, that life began to flow in me. Maybe you've also experienced this, that before you come to Christ, there's areas of your personality that are just dead. You've just ignored things so long, and you've made bad decisions and so on, that you, there's just places maybe where you feel kind of dead. But see, when you're joined to Christ, that life begins to flow into, and you have a different ability for marriage. You have a different ability at times for creativity. You have more patience because life is flowing into you instead of death. And it says in 6, he raised us up with him. And get this next phrase. Has this ever puzzled you? And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, I thought I was in Walnut Creek today. But Philippians 3.20 says this. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship. Where are you from? Heaven. I've traveled enough places where it really was important that I had a U.S. passport. I, I remember sneaking into uh, Hungary in 84 when you weren't supposed to go there. Been in Eastern Europe, been in Cuba, been in places where I would nearly get in trouble because I would be bringing in Bibles or whatever. But when you show that U.S. passport and they know what your citizenship is, you're a lot less likely to get hassled. 
and I would like you to try to get your mind around this. Your citizenship, the place that's really home, where you really belong, ultimately, it's not here. When that begins to work in you, you find yourself loving the things of the world less. Because, well, where I really belong, yes, I have to take care of my kids and change the diapers and, and shop for colleges and all these different things. I do that. And this was a hard one for me to get because I, I find the earth to be so real. But I have found that my citizenship is becoming more and more and more real to me as I simply walk with Christ. It makes the tragedies of life less tragic. It makes losing a, a relative or you're the innocent party in a divorce or you're under financial troubles. It makes it different and just a touch easier when your citizenship is in heaven. Is that where you're from? Where are you from? And why is that important? Verse 7, in order that in the ages to come, the ages to come, we're living in a particular age now, but the moment you pass from this life, you're passing into the time of endless ages where God is going to be doing wonderful things forever and ever and ever and in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness. What's going to be slapping you the moment you leave this life and go into eternity? Kindness and grace. Death is not to be feared. I'm not volunteering to die today, but if I did, I fully know I would be met by angels and what I'd be experiencing is grace and kindness. Grace and kindness. I know several people who have had real near-death or death experiences and all said the same thing. Once they felt themselves leaving their body, they all had the same thing. I don't want to go back. 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 And they're all very different people because of that. We're building toward this eighth verse, which is part of where I want to get you. For by grace, my, I remember the night I got saved, they kept quoting this verse. And the Bible teacher that took us as young believers and kept teaching us, he would just quote this constantly. For by grace are ye saved through faith. The currency of the kingdom is salvation through faith. The currency of America is maybe the dollar, but the currency of the kingdom is saved by faith. For by grace you have been saved by faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. I'm quite a worker bee. I like works. I, I like doing things. I, I feel better, right or wrong, about myself when I do certain things, and I clean the yard and balance the checkbook and so on and so forth. But when we enter into God's world, there's nothing in works that commend us to God. We're already accepted, and the works are because we love God. 
because we care for God, because it just seems right to do things for Him. By grace, you've been saved through faith. Not because you were an Episcopalian like I was, not because you're a pastor's kid, not because you're an American or whatever. You're saved because you, had, you, were, you were smart enough to hear the gospel message and you added to it faith. Faith changes everything. If you're in trouble today, if you could just find faith for your particular situation, if you could find a promise from the Spirit into your heart, or you could find a verse of Scripture, something that built your faith, you would be fine. Grace and faith, and it's all the gift of God. How many of you like gifts? Most of us do. And I remember reading this verse and thinking, so there's nothing I have ever done or can do or ever will do to make God love me. He's just given me a gift. Just given me a gift. I like the days before Christmas as much as Christmas Day. Because I like looking at that pile of gifts and just thinking about it. What might be in there? Especially when you have grandkids around. It's more fun to see them open their gifts than to open your own. Gifts and the concept of gift is something we got to get catch. That God gives us gifts just because he wants to. God has chosen us just because he wants to. Not as a result of works that no man should boast. Now we're at verse 10. We are his instrument. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You might say, okay, pastor, I get it, I get it. You want me to get busy. No, no. I want to encourage you as you spend time with God, as you read the Bible, as you pray, to have this thought in your mind. Am I doing all of what God has for me. Now, again, got to be a faithful husband, faithful wife, faithful citizen, all those different things. But for every one of us, there is a set of works that we need to discover. Anybody here ever been to the Grand Canyon? First guy, to my knowledge, that walked north to south rim there's a guy named Colin Fletcher in 1964. And so he decided he wanted to walk, I don't remember south, north, north to south, but he wanted to be recorded as the first person that we would know that walked that beautiful space. Never been there, want to go. Took him two months. He was so concerned about it, especially when you get to the middle, there's a very unstable period and place of rocks and stuff, that he went to a guy named Harvey, who, had, who was the greatest living expert of that, that terrain. And he said to him, could I walk north to south? And the guy said, I would say yes, except there's one mile in the middle 
that I'm not aware of anybody ever being able to navigate. It's it's rotten rock. It's steep. It's uh, it's it would be difficult to get through it. And I've never done it. I've I've done every other mile, but I've not done that middle part. He said, "So give it a try." No one's ever done it as far as I know. Colin Fletcher, 1964. So he he hikes for one month, and then he arrives at this obvious place where there's just no way forward. It's kind of like when you're going down, a, a, trying to walk alongside a, a river, and then all of a sudden the, the, the cliffs come right down to the river. There's just no way to get past it except by wading, kind of like that. He takes a look at this and sits down, takes off his pack, and thinks, okay, do I want to try this? Do I want to be the guy picks his way through this, and as far as I know, the first guy. And he picks up his pack, being that kind of a guy. He was from Berkeley, so he was crazy. And, uh, and he takes off through this rotten rock. And then the craziest thing happens. A little bit above where he has started, he sees footprints. Footprints. Obviously fairly recent footprints. And so he's like, what, well, what is the deal here? So he is, he's smart enough to realize, well, if somebody else has been here, if there's footsteps I can follow, I, I'm going to do that. And so he follows these footprints. There's places where there's a huge slide. And so you can see that the footprints have had to go up the hill and surmount this slide, this rock slide. And he's able to find all the way across that mile solid footsteps to step in. And he is, he's amazed. And so he gets to the other side, he looks back, and he sees how difficult it would have been if he had not had those footsteps to step in. Now, you know what happens. The moment he completes that next month, gets out of the Grand Canyon, he goes straight back to that guy, Harvey Butcher, and said, you told me that no one had ever been there before, and I was going to have to do this on my own. He said, he said this, I was so sure you would kill yourself that I went out and I walked it myself. Now, I don't know if I would have been mad or happy that he had scooped me. But I remember thinking, isn't that interesting? All he had to do was put his feet where the solid footprints were. Same with you. There's a path for you. So here's your homework. Can I walk out from this thing and not create any havoc? Romans 12, 1 through 8, is your exact path to, maybe not this afternoon, but over a period of time, you can discover, if you carefully read Romans 12, 1 through 8, how to lay down your body as a living sacrifice, experience the renewal of your mind, enter church life, enter body life, and in verse 6, it's going to start talking about our motivational gifts.
you're going you're gonna to find when you do your homework here, there are seven basic kind of internal wired gifts. Prophecy, serving, teaching, leading, giving, exhorting, and showing mercy. That is an inspired list of internal giftings where if you can figure out those one or two things that fit you, you will automatically be pointed in the right direction. So a prophetic person, prophecy, that's the kind of person that's black and white, right or wrong, very interested, always in the big picture, walks into a room and doesn't necessarily see everything, but is wondering, what is God doing here? What is God doing today? That's prophecy. The next person is so different. It simply says, serving. A prophetic person comes into the room, what is God doing? The servant says, the floor is dirty. So many of us love the practical service of others. And we think, well, maybe I should have a, a more prophetic, a huge gift. Some people will spend their entire lives serving the lives and ministries of others, and that is their total calling in God. Serving. The people that come on site and immediately see needs. What's wrong with you? You have a serving gift. Prophecy, serving, and number three, teaching. People that like to give guided tours. People that like to explain things. People that like to write in technical instructions and make things simple. People that see principles. That's a teacher. And see, if, if that's inside you, I, that was inside me and I never knew it until the Lord began to put me in front of people. There was no one else to teach them. And so I began teaching them. In a college campus, five days a week, I taught the Bible. And that's how I discovered one day a teaching gift. Prophecy, serving, teaching. The fourth gift, leading. Leading. The servant grabs the broom. The leader says, you get the broom, you get the dustpan, you keep Jared and Angela away so they don't see this mess. See, leaders have this gifting of coordinating people to meet needs. Maybe you thought you were, maybe you just thought you were bossy. Maybe you are. But if you've ever seen a gift of leadership in action, it is an amazing thing. You know, a, a true leader is because people follow them. There's just something about them. Could that be you? Prophecy, serving, teaching, leading. The fifth is giving. People that see issues and think, wait a minute, there's a solution to that. We could get 15 people to give this, or I, I could save up and give that. But there is an actual gift of giving. It's the craziest thing, but in my city of Monterey, California, I have, I have come into the um, relationships with three different millionaires, and 
how they love to give. A guy the other day said to a particular ministry down there, I want to give a million dollars to help you buy this ministry center. And so all, all you got to do is raise another 500000 A few days later, he said, ah, I'm going to give the other five hundred. dollars No, no who, who does that kind of thing? Nutty people. And these three, pe- these three men that I know, what a delight they have in giving. And it doesn't matter how much the gift is, it's the amount of sacrifice that it is. And maybe you have, a, maybe there's a gift of giving that's flowing through you or wants to flow through you. The next word, six, is he who exhorts. An exhorter is a person who looks at others and encourages them along the way and walks with them like a coach and says, you can get there, I'm going to go with you. An exhorter. Many pastors are exhorters. Many moms are exhorters. But exhortation, is that your thing? Are you the kind of person that looks at people and sees their discouragement and it irritates you and you want to help them? You want to get them from A to B. The teacher says you're at A. There's the way to B. The exhorter says, I will walk you to B. And finally, the last one, could this be you? Those that show mercy. A person with the gift of mercy actually literally feels what's in the heart of other people. (laughs) There's, There's some of us that are just so oblivious to that. Mercy, Greek word, eleos. I, I feel what's inside you. Those seven gifts could help you determine what kind of workmanship, what kind of tool, and what, where the footprints, what they might look like in your life. When you first start out on this path, you're uncertain if that's, is that a footprint? Is that a footprint? You keep at it, and pretty soon you will find yourself navigating rock slides and things that take other people out and take you to the place where you have obeyed God. I want you to be that kind of person who gets at the end of your life and can say with Paul, I have fought the fight, finished the course, kept the faith. I've I've done what I was called to do whatever that is. Whose calling is better? Mine or yours? It's all the same. As long as I obey, and as long as you obey, we all get rewards. So I want to take this moment, if you'd bow your heads with me as the worship team comes. If I could snap my fingers, which I can't, if I could help your eyes to open and to begin to see those footprints, to accept that wiring that's inside you, those instincts that you have. I never wanted to be a pastor, but the minute I got saved and sat in Bible studies, I began noticing and worrying about people. Never before in my life did I care what happened to other people. But that pastor's heart began to awaken in me, and I wondered, why is that person not here? Why is that person outside? Is that a tear I see in someone's eye? And that gift just, it came without permission. 
<laughs> that's that's and that's a good thing. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I have no idea the wonderful gifts and callings and ministries that sit right in front of me. But I know in this gathering today, there are people who are your workmanship, your instruments, who are going to make a great difference in the lives of others. And so, Lord, I have poured out my heart the best I know how. And I doubt if I've done it perfectly. But you, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, can turn knobs in our hearts. You can open our eyes. You can help us to recognize that our gut instincts may just be a Romans 12 thing. Lord, we are privileged to be dead no longer. We are privileged that we are not walking under Satan's thumb. We are privileged to be people who know kindness, goodness, and grace and will know it for the ages to come. Father, teach us your way. Take us through the trials we may be in that have made us very intensely self-centered and help us to get our eyes back on you. Holy Spirit, you are the dispenser of the gifts. Would you please sharpen our focus, clarify our vision. May we be people who fulfill our destiny. And Lord Jesus, all the praise, credit, honor, and glory to you that as we find the way, it's just because you put the footsteps in front of us so we would figure out where to go. We love you today. And as we continue to worship and share communion, we are just full of thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.